0: Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Joining me right now, Dr. André Villeneuve. He's Associate Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit. He received his doctorate from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem in 2013, where his dissertation covered nuptial symbolism in the New Testament and the ancient Jewish writings. His main areas of interest include the study of sacred scripture, the Jewish roots of the Catholic faith, leading pilgrimages to the Holy Land, and fostering the reconciliation of Israel and Church through the work of Catholics for Israel, and you can learn more at catholicsforisrael.com for com. Andre, good to see you again.
1: Hello, Alex, good yeah. to be here. Thanks for having me. Talk to me
0: that your book, Divine Marriage from Eden to the End of Days, emerged from your
1: doctoral work. Is that right? It has. It's a book that's got a long history. It's about, uh, well, it came out in this recension, just a little more than a year ago, but uh, its Genesis goes back, uh, not to Genesis 1, that's quite as far as that, (laughs) but uh, it goes back at least, I think, 15 or 16 years, going back to about 2007, back when I was a starting PhD student at uh, the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. I was trying to scramble, trying to find some kind of topic that would be relevant to my studies over there and somehow connected with Catholic theology and would be able to be a bridge between Jewish yeah. uh, exegesis and, and Christian theology as well. And so uh, it started back then. I, I, I still have this original piece of paper ice. I had all these arrows and all these topics and I was trying to make sense of coming up with a the theme and... Um, So it took me about six or seven years to write. I submitted in 2012, and so that was accepted in 2013 when I got the PhD. And then it was published in the first very scholarly edition uh, by Brill. Mm -hmm. It was called A Nuptial Symbolism uh, Through... Key moments of salvation history, something like that. I don't yeah. even remember. Very, uh, barely edited from my dissertation. Still, mm-hmm. so still extremely academic and yeah. very expensive. Yeah. And so after that uh, came out, I thought, okay, I'm done with that for the rest of my life. I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to deal with that topic anymore. Which of course was uh, was not true. I knew it at the time. But then after a few years, I thought, well, I've put in so much work into it, and I know that this is really too academic for most normal right. folks. You know, yeah. and so I thought maybe I'll just write a some somewhat simplified version of it. Yeah. So if you looked at the book, it's still a pretty robust uh, scholarly book, but uh, yeah. it's a little more accessible to most uh, most people.
0: And, uh, I mean, what you do is you really give an overview of salvation history yeah. from the standpoint of the nuptial relationship. Is this nuptial imagery best developed within the Catholic tradition, or do you find other Christian
1: traditions working it? well? that has got a long history as well so the, the catholic tradition certainly developed it, you know beginning with the, the church fathers and then very much the, the medievals and a big part of my book is the uh, exegesis of the song of songs yeah. so there's a lot of that in catholic tradition there's some in protestant tradition though we see a, a certain turn towards rationalism yeah. as we know going starting with protestantism then into the enlightenment but obviously this does not begin with a catholic theology or exegesis it's very much a jewish thing yeah and uh there's much mystery surrounding the origins of the song of songs itself which i'm sure we're going to talk about but the question is you know that the kind of more modern view is to say, okay, it was just a kind of a, a love song between that, a guy and a girl, that's right? right. Who loved yeah, that's each other. That's,
0: kind of the, that's right. It's kind of now been reduced to this kind of love poetry, romance, right. a bit of romantic poetry. Right. And,
1: Which is absolutely possible because the name of God is not mentioned right? in the Song of Songs and there is right. no mention, at least no explicit mention that this is a metaphor, an allegory for the, the love between God and Israel and right. God and his people. But some, uh, I think most modern scholars today would say, no, it's just an erotic love song between those two, kind of a marriage... uh,
0: then, then hymn? Then how did it end up in the canon, then, is
1: what i That's an excellent <laughs> question. So you still have a minority of scholars who would say, no, actually, there was something intentional right there from the beginning. Mm. I mean, it could end up in the canon as a, as a marriage song. Sure. Right? I mean, Ecclesiastes sure. made it in the canon, too, and <laughs> yeah. it's a book full of, of skepticism.
0: Very grim book. Very grim book. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Right, right. So there's uh, there's some debate. Most scholars, as I said today, see it as a marriage song, but we know that quite early, definitely at the time of Christ, that we we see the beginning of, uh, of an allegorical algor- uh, interpretation, which throughout the history of interpretation has become by far the predominant view of reading the Song of Songs as this allegory between God and the Church. Yeah. And that, of course, builds on what we find in both the New and Old Testament, the, the marital metaphor, which begins most explicitly really with the prophet Hosea, and we have it also in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and a little bit in Isaiah as well, and then that's picked up in the New Testament, obviously. Easily, but. So, in in Jewish thinking,
0: is this marriage metaphor ever does that ever become central to Jewish thought, or is it just something they mentioned? Uh, it starts with Hosea, okay, and so you've got that unusual relationship there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is it does it go back to you know Jewish self understanding uh, before the exile?
1: Before the yeah. exile, it's difficult to tell. But just the testimony of the prophets. Is a pretty strong witness. Again, Hosea, Jeremiah uses Ezekiel and yeah. Isaiah. It's not all the prophets, and in the rest of Scripture, we don't find a whole lot of it. In the yeah. Pentateuch, there are barely a few hints. Okay. Uh, of course, the, the covenant is central to the Pentateuch. But yes. And the, um, the revelation at Mount Sinai came to be seen as a nuptial moment, as a betrothal, but you can't really read that explicitly in the book of Exodus. Gotcha. Right? God That's, makes it clear, I'm making a covenant with you, I'll be a king of priests and a holy nation, yeah. but it's not saying I'm espousing myself to you or I'm betrothing right, you.
0: Right, right, right. So that, that becomes something that is seen, uh, in a it's read back into what happened there right. in light of uh, later. Right uh, understandings of who God is and our relationship to Him.
1: Right, so it's definitely there at the time of the exile because we have the pre-exilic prophets like Hosea and, yeah. uh, and Jeremiah. So, but it it took off. Uh, later in the second temple period and then after the time of christ with all the rabbinic writings okay. and the commentaries on the song of songs
0: so the rabbinic writings uh make much of this too this uh, marital metaphor very
1: much that's where it it completely takes wow. off it's it, uh, it actually goes crazy with what we know as the targum and the midrash on the song of songs they're ancient jewish uh, commentaries the targum mm-hmm. is the aramaic interpretation or it's supposed to be translation. The Targum is technically a translation of the Hebrew texts.
0: An Aramaic translation?
1: A, a, is, Aramaic, yeah. That, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's actually very much a paraphrase. Yeah, it's and it's the, fairly loose. Very extremely <laughs> loose. In fact, the Targum on the Song of Songs, you can't even recognize that. It's the Song of Songs. Really? Wow. And uh, I, I, I don't know if any of my students will hear this uh, now, because I always give them this text, which I call a mystery text. And I ask them to read it and to try to identify to which book of Scripture it's related to. And it usually takes them weeks, and I have to give them hints, but it turns out it's the Targum on the Song of Songs, which reads the Song of Songs verse by verse. And once you see it, you can't not see it anymore, but it rewrites the entire Song of Songs as the history of Israel.
0: Wow. Yeah. (laughs) That's remarkable. Um, What principles from the scriptural symbolism explored in your book can be applied today as we think about the love between Christ and the church?
1: Well, that was one of the reasons why I chose this topic, because being at Hebrew University, I couldn't really write a a dissertation on on Catholic theology, right? right? They are focused on uh, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, a little bit of New Testament, a little bit of ancient Christianity, but it was definitely not a a degree focused on pastoral application. But I was still thinking, uh, you know, at the back of my mind, how could I make this somehow relevant and obviously, I don't think I really need to convince anyone that marriage is in crisis today, not just marriage, but even since I've published my, my dissertation, um, this has devolved to an entire crisis on the very identity of the human person, as we know, uh, the, the identity of, of the human person as created male and female in the image of God. And so even even back then, when I was trying to think of a topic, I was trying to figure out what could I do that's rooted in these ancient texts but would have um, pastoral uh, application or at least would shed light on the mystery of love between God and his people mm-hmm. and that how that sheds light on marriage between men and women.
0: Yeah. So you, you were able to see this uh, nuptial symbolism going all the way back to Adam and Eve?
1: Yeah, for sure. But there too, when you read uh, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 right. – it's funny what is not said. Of course, we know that account of the creation of man is extremely brief. It is mm-hmm. extremely schematic and more is not told than, than we were told. But notice what, what words are never used in their love, never used, right? right? Marriage, right. we're Just told, okay, we're told that uh, right. you, Adam, you will leave your father and mother be joined to your wife. You shall become one flesh. So there's a good hint. We're talking about a serious union here, a sexual union, sure. but the word marriage is, is not used. And, uh, so, uh, Of course, everything that is not said in those initial chapters of Genesis becomes really... Choice materials for biblical interpretation, because the ancients, even at the time of Christ or in the Second Temple period, you know, the few, first, the, the few centuries before Christ, uh, of course, marriage was a big deal both in Judaism and also in early Christianity. And yeah. so there was a great expansion of those texts, um, yeah. so Genesis 1 to 3 especially.
0: Yeah, so that again, uh, from later um, revelation and later reflection yeah. upon God uh, helps us to look back at the earlier uh, texts right. and see their um,
1: templates right. for what's to come later. Exactly. Is that the way to look at it? Right. Um, so the the Midrash, which again is a, uh, an ancient Jewish commentary on the scriptures. Mm-hmm. I did a lot with the Midrash on Genesis 1 and 2 and what we see what does the Midrash do? It's The Midrash generally expands, greatly expands the biblical stories. And so what we're not told in Genesis 1 and 2, the Midrash says actually God was the... um the matchmaker between Adam and Eve mm-hmm. and God married creation himself it's not just he created the world but he betrothed all of creation to himself yes. and then there's other traditions that say that God betrothed the, the Sabbath to Adam and Eve and so were the Sabbath every day of the week had a partner right the first and second day the third and fourth the fifth and sixth but the Sabbath had no, no partner huh. and so in anticipation God uh, anticipated saying okay the Sabbath you're going to be your bride's going to be Israel but you have to wait a bit, right, yes. until Israel is constituted, and that so it connects Genesis with Exodus with the giving of the of the Torah, the, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, with uh, so that the Sabbath at this point is not just a commandment; but it is it's a betrothal, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, d- 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 going back to this idea of uh, a, a union, a betrothal between God and creation, is that something which you see? You mentioned it here. Uh, is is there a we know about Christ in the church is yep. there a sense of god in the world as a couple
1: god and the world as a couple yeah the
0: created order yeah once yeah.
1: again it's something you see more explicitly in the the rabbinic sources so we're mm-hmm. talking most of them are po- post christ yeah. the first centuries of the christian era um So that is, it's more hinted at in the Old Testament. But even before that, Second Temple period, uh, guys like Philo and Josephus around the time of Christ really saw this idea of God being wedded to the world.
0: Very good. Hold it there if you would, Andre. We'll come back and continue the conversation. My guest, Dr. Andre Villeneuve, we are looking at the work that he's done on the nuptial symbolism in the New and Old Testaments and we're going to continue uh, on the other side of the break. As a people. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me, uh, Dr. André Villeneuve. We're looking at his work uh, in the book, uh, The Divine, Divine Marriage, From Eden to the End of Days. And uh, it's it really you do get a big picture of salvation history uh, through this nuptial imagery that we see uh, in Scripture. Uh, I was looking at um, what you wrote regarding the uh, the Gospel of John, and um, I never I've never heard this before. So I want to make sure we talked about it. You mentioned that in the fourth Gospel. Nuptial symbolism is introduced by the sequence of seven days of a new creation, culminating in the wedding at Cana, where Jesus, as the new Adam, addresses his mother as woman, hinting at the woman of Genesis 3.15. That's great stuff, but yeah. tell, tell me, show me where are you, does that, how do you pick that up in the Gospel of John? How do you pick up the sequence of seven
1: uh, the, the gospel of john uh, ob- obviously is a masterpiece and uh, it's it's actually full of nuptial symbolism but it's very hidden mm-hmm. you know how many times jesus is called bridegroom in the, the gospel of john uh, just one Just mm-hmm. one in john 329 by john the baptist and but when you look at the wedding at cana at first sight Probably most people would think, oh, it's right there in the wedding at Cana. But at the wedding at Cana, Jesus is not the one who's getting married, right? Right. He he turns the water into wine. And uh, you you can get a sense there's something going on here, but it's hard to put your finger on it unless you really look carefully at the text and have an idea of what's the the Jewish background behind it. So, yeah, Obviously, John chapter two comes after John chapter one, and so Mm -hmm. what leads up to the wedding at Cana? Well, for one thing, through through, and and uh,
0: by the way, just let me say for for listeners who may be unfamiliar with this, it really is important to know that the gospel writers were conscious of sequencing and the story form, what they were saying and telling. These these are not just random. reminiscences that they're throwing out. They're they're
1: creating a story. For sure. Yeah, for sure. And they're very familiar. They're very aware of what the Old Testament teaches. So to really understand the Gospels, you have to have a good knowledge of the Old Testament. Otherwise, it barely works. So what's going on in John chapter 1? We see... First, obviously, the revelation of the Logos, the Word made flesh, mm-hmm. and then we meet John the Baptist, and then we hear about this sequence of days. If you look at the text carefully, it says John the Baptist appears, and then the next day he met the, the disciples, and the next day he saw Jesus, says, behold, the Lamb of God, and the next day, so you have a sequence of four days, yeah, right? And then it says in John 2, chapter 2, verse 1, and on the third day there was a wedding at Cana. So, what do we see here? We see a sequence of four days plus three. So, really, the wedding at Cana is at the end on the seventh day of the sequence of, of yeah. a week uh, of sorts. And we hear the beginning of the Gospel of John. How does the Gospel of John begin, uh, as is well known, in the beginning right. was the word, right? Mm-hmm. And so, that's that's been noted by many scholars. In the beginning, it's echoing the book of Genesis, and we have right. this theme of light and of... Uh, of uh, Well, of of the words becoming flesh. So there are some connections with, with Genesis 1. And then also it's well known that it's a bit odd the way Jesus talks to Mary. That's right. right. So have,
0: everybody points that out.
1: Yeah. Is he being
0: rude here? Is he being
1: impersonal? Right. Why does he address her as woman? Woman, what is this between me and you? It's very awkward in English. In Hebrew, it's a lot more idiomatic valach. what is to me and to you uh, it is a bit familiar and it does seem a little bit a little bit rough even uh, even in Hebrew so uh, obviously someone calling uh, uh, his his mother woman. It's only hinted at the Gospel of John, but from this we get more light from the book of Revelation, the other great joining writing at the end of the Mm -hmm. New Testament, where we see in John chapter 12, a woman who comes, who is clothed with the sun and the the moon under her feet, and she gives birth to one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. So that's an allusion to Psalm 2. And obviously we're talking about this woman who is... In many ways, she represents Israel, but she's also the mother of the Messiah, and so she is Mary. And then we see her battling this ancient serpent, who is also known as Satan and the devil. So, Revelation 12 identifies the ancient serpent in the garden, because in the garden, he's never identified as Satan or the devil, right? Right. That's a later tradition. And uh, so, John 2, through Revelation 12, really makes makes it quite evident that there's a connection between... um, between Adam and Eve, and then between Jesus and his mother.
0: Yeah, so she's she's, she's Mary is the second Eve in that passage. Is that That's right?
1: right, right. Fascinating, right. But there's also a very strong connection with uh, the the Sinai revelation, and that is even less noticed by by commentaries. So what's going on at? Um, at at the wedding at Cana, so once again, Jesus will turn water into wine. We mm-hmm. see a bridegroom who is kind of clueless. We don't even know who he is, mm-hmm. right? And we have the, the master of the feast. And then we see Mary who says uh, to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Well, can you think of a passage in the Old Testament that sounds a lot like that? Do whatever he tells you. Now, that's a command. You, we hear it said in the affirmative Much earlier in the Old Testament. Whatever he has whatever he has said we will do and we will obey. Yeah. That's
0: the children of Israel. Children of Israel Israel, who
1: say that three times at Mount Sinai in Exodus nineteen and twenty
0: four. Yeah, that's fascinating.
1: Right. And uh when you look at when did God reveal reveal himself at Mount Sinai, in Exodus nineteen we're told that on the third day God would appear at, at Mount Sinai on the third day. interesting. And the Targum on the book of Exodus, once again, the Targum is this ancient Aramaic translation of the Hebrew scriptures, has actually a sequence of four days leading up to this third day, leading up to Mount Sinai. So basically <laughs> Moses and the Israelites arrived at Mount Sinai. The next day Moses went up on the mountain. The next day God said, prepare yourselves because I'm going to appear on the third day. And on the third day, God appeared on the mountain. Wow! And, he gives Israel the Torah, which we know as the law. And in Jewish tradition, the Torah is compared with good wine. <laughs> the, the wine that brings joy, that brings, uh, that brings life. And um, wow. yeah, so we really see a, a strong connection here between this, uh, this wine that's given. And as I said a bit earlier, Mount Sinai in Jewish tradition is recognized as a betrothal. And so this is where God calls Israel to become his bride. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so when you read <laughs> that... That's incredible background. There's a yeah. lot there. So when you read the wedding at Cana in light of Mount Sinai, you realize, wow, and what did God reveal at Mount Sinai to Israel apart from from the Torah? Um, covenant. Covenant, yeah. but also himself. Yes. Right? Yes. His, yeah. and, and he's known they, as revealing his, yeah. his glory. Yes, right? his glory. That's right. What, yeah. did, what did Jesus reveal at the wedding at Cana? Yeah. Yeah. He said, my hour has not yet come, but then he revealed his glory. We're told at the end of the narrative.
0: And let's, let's actually – that's always puzzled people that uh, on the one hand, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, but it's his first public miracle. Yeah. Uh, is he reluctant at that point? What does he, what does he mean? His is he is, is referring to the, is referring to the, the passion yeah. by my hour?
1: Yeah, he is. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So in other words, it's the beginning of his public ministry. It's his first miracle, and there's an anticipation of his passion. And yeah. so in, in a sense, uh, Mary prompts him by asking the servants to do whatever he does. You know, this okay. is a response of, or an echo of Israel at Mount Sinai, their obedience to the Lord, and now the servants are, are to obey what Jesus says. And that leads to this revelation of the wine the wine of the new Torah to revealing Jesus' glory, but his glory will be fully revealed really during the Paschal mystery at yeah. the, the crucifixion and resurrection.
0: It, it must be difficult for you to hear sermons because they 're thin by comparison to oh. what you 're
1: describing right now. Oh, you really <laughs> want to go there <laughs> <laughs>
0: i 'm listening and i 'm thinking back over all the sermons that I gave years ago, yeah and i 'm thinking to myself, yeah, that never even occurred to me. <laughs>
1: We have a lot of room for improvement in our sermons. <laughs> this uh, the, the alleged seven minutes uh, yeah. limit of uh, of sermons. Our Catholics uh, know so little about Scripture, and yeah. there's just so much room for good catechesis and good faith formation. And uh, something I tell the seminarians when I'm teaching is, you know what the first reading is for? It's actually not there to be ignored. <laughs> And I tell them, if I ever show up after you ordain, and if I I ever show up at a Mass, and you just ignore the first reading, I will go after you. I will will hunt you down. Yeah. The, The first reading is meant to
0: set up the Gospel reading, isn't it? Isn't there mm-hmm. supposed to be a direct correlation between the two?
1: It is. Yeah. It is. But very often you can just the first reading is homiletics material right there. So of course the trick is to to connect all the readings the psalm and the first reading and yeah. the, and the gospel and the second reading.
0: Yeah. 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 Oh, that's that is rich. Um the the, the, the St Paul uh the, yeah, okay, we got time. Uh St Paul, does he how does he understand uh this nuptial imagery how, how does he use
1: it before we go to saint paul i should probably say a few things about what's going on in the old testament sure the, the big yeah, picture in go the right old testament. That's, that's fine so the whole first half of the book is really focused on the old testament uh, which the jews know as, as the tanakh the, the torah the the prophets and the writings and the whole idea is that nuptial symbolism is revealed in and through salvation history and in my original dissertation in this book it's still there uh, you see four key moments of salvation history mm-hmm. in uh, both Old Testament and New Testament. And these four key moments actually reflect very much a very Catholic worldview. And this is where I was stealthily doing Catholic theology as I was... Uh, at Hebrew University. At Hebrew University, yeah. 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 And so we already talked about the Garden of Eden, God who, who marries, who weds Adam and Eve, and who marries the world. And so marriage has this original prototype Right? That is ideal because marriage now, as human nature is wounded and marriage is wounded, we sometimes, we often lose track of what marriage is supposed to be. So we see this original prototype in the wedding between Adam and Eve and between God and creation. And we know that that was broken through sin in Genesis 3. So that calls for a redemptive moment. So number one, the prototype in the Garden of Eden. And what is this redemptive moment in the Old Testament? That would be Mount Sinai. Yeah. Okay, God reveals himself to Israel Uh, The rabbis say this is when God restored his presence on earth, this presence that had been lost with the sin of the Garden of Eden when his glory departed from creation. Mm -hmm. At Mount Sinai, he reestablishes this covenant, he weds, he marries uh, the people of Israel or betroths them, and now he is in this nuptial marriage relationship with them. But what's the problem? There's a few problems. First, well, there's the golden calf and the fact that the Israelites were not always super faithful. Right, but they had to depart from Mount Sinai, right? And so, how would they remain in communion with God? Yeah, throughout their history, through the wanderings it, in the desert, but also tabernacle, so and the temple, and that's point number three. Yeah. So we have this redemptive moment that restores God's presence, but then how is God's presence going to remain through with Israel? And that's going to be in the tabernacle. And there's a liturgical component of that.
0: Okay. Hold it there. We'll pick it up on the other side. All right. Uh, My guest, Dr. Andre Villeneuve, we're taking a look at his uh, really great work called Divine Marriage, From Eden to the End of Days. And uh, looking over again this idea of the mystical marriage between Christ and His Church, between uh, God and Israel, between God and the world. And good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. André Villeneuve, who is the author of Divine Marriage, From Eden to the End of Days. Uh, It's it's a remarkably rich book. We've been going over some of it, we're talking about the uh, this idea of the mystical marriage, uh, the nuptial imagery that we see, uh, especially uh, in the New Testament. But uh, he talked about mystical marriage as a return to the origins. So you see it with Adam and Eve uh, in the garden. Um, again, it's um, pointing to the mystical marriage between Christ and the Church. Then there's mystical marriage as redemptive event, dealing with Passover, Exodus in Sinai, and then uh, when the children of Israel uh, are on the move, uh, you have mystical marriage and liturgical worship. So
1: you have the tabernacle and then the temple. And then where do we go from there? Well, so that's number three. Number one, the prototype in the Garden of Eden. Number two, redemptive event to repair the break that was caused by the fall. Mm -hmm. And then as we said Mount Sinai was very short-lived, and so they had to move on and move towards the promised land, and so that's when you had the tabernacle, and this required sacrifices uh, for the sake of communion. And uh, this is where there's really a lot in the, the Midrash and the commentaries that speak of the the, the Holy of Holies as a nuptial chamber, the place where God was united with his bride, so a wow. marriage bed of sorts yeah. between God and israel, so you don 't usually think of that when you think of uh, of the Temple, right, but you have a lot of imageries in the uh, in the in the Talmud, for example, in those Jewish writings that are um, almost a little bit shocking. For example, when the, uh, the the pagans, for example, the Greeks, when they took over the uh, Jerusalem at the time of the Maccabees, and they actually opened, they removed the curtain to see what was in the Holy of Holies, and they saw the two cherubim embracing each other. And hmm. uh, even before that, the some of the sages, we don't know if it's true or if it's legend or what right. it is, but it was part of the Jewish imagination. They said... Uh, Behold, Israel, this is how much God loves you, like a man loves a woman. And this is the love between God and you. So the temple was this recollection and recalling of Mount Sinai, of this betrothal or marriage. And at the same time, it pointed towards the future, towards the consummation of the marriage between God and Israel in the Messianic age. And that's what we see in the prophets, especially near the end of Isaiah, right, around Isaiah 62 and things like that about this restoration of the marriage. So it's a real drama between the fall and the the, the break uh, caused by sin, redemption perpetuated through the liturgy and uh, sacrificial worship in the tabernacle, but also looking towards the future. Yeah. And then when we come to the New Testament, we see that same pattern. It, the Messianic Age has started, but you're seeing the... The pattern recapitulated. It's recapitulated, exactly. So we talked about the wedding at Cana, which has an allusion back to the Garden of Eden with Mary, who is the woman. Uh And then what's going to be the great redemptive event? Well, that's kind of easy for us Christians. It's the Paschal Mystery, right? Where God or or Christ revealed his glory. Yes. And the Paschal Mystery, Jesus wore a crown, which is what bridegrooms also wore in the the, uh, ancient uh, world. And uh, we have a lot of nuptial. For example, what does uh, Nicodemus come and he brings myrrh and aloes, right? Which yes. is something we meet we see in the Song of Songs. And even before his passion, we see Mary who anoints him with uh, with nards. And the only other place in the Bible where we hear about nard is the Song of Songs. <laughs> <laughs> and then at the at his resurrection. Unique to the Gospel of John, we see uh, Mary Magdalene, who comes to the tomb. And think about this. We, hear, we see a woman. It's still dark. She comes to the tomb. She's looking for the one she loves. Yes. She meets guardians, and she asks them, you know, where have they – have you seen yes. the one I love? Yes. And then she, sees, she turns around a few times. She sees Jesus, and he says, do not hold on to me. Why does he say, do not hold on to me? Yeah. Well, that's the Song of Songs chapter three. I held him and would not let him go until he brought me into my mother's chamber. That, 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 so there's
0: echoes of the Song of Songs there
1: at the resurrection. Yeah, yeah. And what does Jesus say? I have not yet gone to the Father, for I go and prepare, uh, you know, I, and go prepare a place for you. So he's echoing the Song of Songs and his words and his actions at the the resurrection. So there you have this is your redemptive event in the new covenant. It's his his passion, death, and resurrection. But then. In the Old Testament, we have the tabernacle to perpetuate this, and yeah. how does that work now in the New Testament? Well, now we go back to your question from earlier, St. Paul. He says, well, first, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, yeah. and so it happens within our bodies and our souls, but also we have baptism. And we have the Eucharist. What is baptism? Well, baptism is a washing of water. And what do Jewish women, even to this day, when they get married, they have to go through a mikveh, which is going down in the water and coming out for a type of ritual purification. And we see that in Ezekiel 16. We see this this metaphor of God adopting Israel as a woman who was abandoned, as a girl who was abandoned. He washed her and cleansed her to bring her into covenant with him. And then when we go to Ephesians chapter 5, Paul talks about this great great mystery, yeah. which is the marriage between Christ and the church. And he said, yes, he washed the church. Right? He washed her and uh, purified her so that she, she may be without spot or wrinkle. And so he's talking about baptism. He, he's also talking about this nuptial, this bridal bath of sorts. Yeah. right? And then he says... Uh, for the, uh, you know, a husband shall love their wives as Christ loved the right. church and gave himself and, uh, you know, basically feeding her and yes. nourishing her. Yep. And here we have some Eucharistic allusions towards this one flesh union. So just as for Israel, the tabernacle perpetuated the marriage. For us, we see the marriage is consummated at the cross with a passion, but it's continued in through history, through the sacraments, especially baptism and the Eucharist.
0: Wow. Yeah, it is interesting that this is a, this represents a worldview that is uh, well, it's alien to most uh, Christians, right? You know. I mean, it's it is um, you 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 need how to put this? You need really an ecclesial culture mm-hmm. that um, t- expresses these truths not only at the time of the liturgy. But in in the, the, even in the daily uh, life, um, as families as they as they think on these things, uh, how do these truths take form? Yes, uh, in the family culture that you're building. Yes, um, because this this is really goes. Uh, this is so much richer than the naturalistic in materialistic and scientific view of the world that i'm afraid uh, many christians carry with them right. just because it's that's the culture we swim in you know we right. that's what we're that we're wet with yeah. we're not wet with the truths of baptism yeah <laughs> we're wet with the truths of the culture that we're swimming in unfortunately yes yeah, yeah. yeah. um do Mystical marriage as eschatological consummation, Mm -hmm. okay, this is, we're in this period of time where the kingdom has been inaugurated, but it's not yet fully uh, manifest. Right. Um, What do you see that, uh, in light of this, how ought we to be living in this time between the already and the not
1: yet. Yes. Yeah, well, the not yet, first we see a glimpse of it in the book of Revelation yeah. with the coming down of the new New Jerusalem uh, as a bride adorned for her, her husband. And so we see the end of salvation history is essentially a marriage, a yeah. consummation of the yeah. marriage Revelation 19 and, and 21. In the meantime, what should we do? Well, that is a loaded question. Yeah. Uh, first, we need to develop a, a biblical worldview, and as you just said, uh, it's the irony that in this day and age we've never had such easy access to so, so many great resources and books and apps, and, and yeah. on our phones we can have a whole library, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I wonder if there's ever been an age of so much ignorance of of sacred scripture, right? Right? right. As Saint Jerome said, uh, "Ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ." And so you're right. We see so many Catholics and Christians who may even be devout Catholics and Christians. But still, there's very often not a whole lot of depth in our knowledge of of Scripture. And that's because I think particularly in America, we don't have a great culture of learning, of ongoing learning, with some exceptions, of course, and some great communities and so on. But uh, that's something else I learned from living in Israel is that uh, observant Orthodox Jews have such a great culture of learning. At every Sabbath meal, you know, they, they'll read from the Torah and they'll discuss the Torah. And it goes way beyond, bless us, O Lord, and these like, gifts that yeah. you're about to receive, which is basically the spiritual life of most Catholic families, right? Yeah. If even that, that we yeah. say a quick blessing and that's it. Then we yeah. talk about football and secular yeah. and yeah. frivolous stuff, right? And uh, so at every Sabbath, they, they pull out the Torah and they have, uh, you know, they give honor to God and discuss the word of God. And uh, young Jewish men on the Sabbath or even during the day, they go to the, the synagogue and spend 45 minutes uh, praying and studying the Torah. And sometimes the whole afternoon on the Sabbath, they go to their yeshivas, to their Bible or rabbinical schools, and they sit two by two and they just discuss the Word of God. And it's wow. a source of great joy and exhilaration almost. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so they see the Torah as a, as a source of joy. And uh, that's something that... We, as Catholics, we tend to see study, if at all, as a means to an end. So we study so that somehow we can, you know, get to heaven or get to know God. Mm -hmm. But they see study as the highest form of worship. Of course, they're lacking a lot, too, because they don't have the Eucharist and the sacraments. Sure, sure. But they see study as worship. And I don't know how many Catholics actually have that approach to say, hey, I'm actually worshiping God by spending time with the Scriptures. Yeah.
0: And there's, there's in some Catholic circles even a slight anti-intellectualism yeah. that, that somehow study um, gets in the way of right. your encounter with God. Right. You know, um, right. and, and simply that's, you know, the right use of reason is uh, intended right. to direct us uh, to God, yeah. not become a barrier yeah. to knowing God. Um. And so, yeah, there's a there's a uh, I, I, a, a, a culture where st- studying is seen as um, a joy. It's I don't want to. I mean, when we think of, we think of things that are our joy, we think about going and playing sports or something or right. games. Right. Uh, it sounds as though for them, a joy is to immerse yourself in the text. Mm-hmm. and see what you can derive from it.
1: Yeah. Uh, and it's usually a communal thing, so you don't yeah, see so much good. in Jewish culture sitting alone at the library for hours on end and okay. just, just reading on your own. So it's usually at least two by two and in small groups. And it can involve – it usually involves eating, so that helps a lot in making things fun and more enjoyable. And often it involves singing and even dancing, you know. So it's it's yeah. all really ve- very well integrated. Um, the access – access, again, to the tree of life.
0: Let's set that up for us in this framework. Mm-hmm.
1: Access to, to the tree of life. Well, I'm thinking of Proverbs 3.18, which says that wisdom herself is, is the tree of life. And I have a chapter on the wisdom literature, and especially I look at the book of Sirach, yeah. for which I'm writing a commentary right now for right. the Catholic Commentary on the Sacred Scripture. And uh, Sirach 24 identifies wisdom. So there's this perpetual search for wisdom in all the wisdom books, right? Where is right. wisdom to be found? And we know the beginning of wisdom is is the fear of the Lord. So it involves humility, it involves submitting to God's commandments. But in fact, uh, Sirach 24, as well as the book of Baruch, identify wisdom with with the Torah. Huh. And so, yeah. and, and with the, the tree of life. And so, how do you get back to the tree of life? Well, through wisdom, but also by studying the Torah, which is this way of returning into communion with God.
0: Yeah. Well, Andre, thanks. And great talking with you. This it's been is a pleasure. A marvelous, marvelous book, and I'm, I've got it. Like I said uh, on Kindle, but I'm looking forward it to its use on the uh, my digital library system. It's not yet there, but thank you. My and pleasure. We'll thanks talk for having again me. soon. Yeah. Uh-huh. I'm Al Cresta. Be right back.